Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're in a series on the church, and I've got a two-part series within that series called Broken. Kind of what, what's gone wrong with the church? What does it look like when an individual church is a bit broken? And I want to play a song for you. It is not a Christian song. It is not a Christian band. This is not a Christian concert. In fact, this group, who is called Collective Soul, actually toured and fronted for uh, Van Halen, and Van Halen is definitely not a Christian group. Back in 1995 on their balance tour, I don't know what Van Halen thought they could do about balance, but anyway, they had a balance tour in 1995. Collective Soul would open for them. So this is definitely not a Christian environment. And in this video, they're joined actually by the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra, so it's kind of a rock song. There's a lot of beauty in it with these uh, children playing all kinds of instruments. But I want you to listen to this song. The song is called Run. I love this song. And we're gonna put the words on the video. Brennan did that for me this week. And I want you to listen. And if you're inclined to like, what are they doing playing a rock song in church? You're the person who needs this sermon more than anybody. And now you can't walk out because we'll all notice. So you're stuck. But I want you to listen to this song and I want you to try to interpret the main point of this song. And then we're gonna talk about that in a moment. I've never been this bored before Is this the prize I've waited for?
couple of things. Not the drug, sex, and rock and roll you expect at a rock concert. Number two, I wish I had hair. <laughs> when you're trying to interpret music, you know, it's not always easy because you imagine that these guys sometimes, you know, it's best to watch an interview uh, of the artists. You know, hey, we were sitting down and we were all just being cool and exhale, you know, and that's how a lot of their songs are written. This song has some depth. Are these times contagious? I've never been this bored before. Is this the prize I've waited for? He is absolutely talking about the shallowness of our existence. There's nothing left here to ensure. I long to find the messenger. Somebody has got to help me find the meaning of life. Nothing's worth ensuring that he's experienced. Have I got a long way to run to find the answers to that? Is there a cure among us from this processed sanity? I weaken with each voice that sings. I'm tired of people telling me what life is all about. Lots of competing voices out there. Now in this world of purchase, I'm gonna buy back memories. I have it all. But the best part of life were just days I lived long ago. It's the only thing that seemed to have any value. If I got a long way to run. That was just a short musical version done very beautifully. Version of the book of Ecclesiastes. That was a secular song that's basically the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Secular content or secular concert, hands in the air, pretty gals at the stage, middle schoolers playing violins and flutes and clarinets, and a whole group of people at times singing the lyrics at a rock concert of the age-old question, what is the meaning of life? That's a rock concert, and a whole bunch of people who probably don't know Jesus are singing, I got a long way to run. I want a messenger. They're singing out loud the questions that we claim to have the answers to. And the question is, and what we're going to talk about today is, why aren't they all in church? Because we have those answers, or better, what kind of churches are actually reaching them if they're there on a Friday night? Where would they go to church on Sunday? Or better, what principles guide those kinds of churches that reach those kinds of people? Now last week we talked about the problem in the church, and we talked about it in a, in a Jewish context, context. Jesus presented himself as Messiah and God. It was Palm Sunday, and he, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, people are thronging to him, but then he got to the temple area. If you, if you didn't see that message, I'd encourage you to watch it online. He got to the temple area, and then he went back home, came back the next day, and he was furious because the temple system, which was supposed to be ready for Messiah and God, who is now walking the planet, was not in in a good enough condition to relay that message about who Jesus was to the masses. So Jesus came into a world of millions of people looking for Messiah and hundreds of thousands in Jerusalem that weekend proclaiming him as Messiah, but the system that actually would spread that to the masses was broken. So it was more like Jesus with the crowds rather than the church or Israel in this case helping the masses understand it. And so Jesus was angry and he cleansed the temple and he went a little little bit, he was out there. I mean, he's throwing tables over, he's pitching chairs around, doves are flying free that were being purchased for sacrifice, coins are rolling across the room because the bridge to salvation, which the temple system was meant to be, was out. And in the book of Matthew, Jesus said to those religious leaders that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them and given to a generation or an ethnos that would bear its fruits, and that would be the church. That's why we're here today. We're supposed to be the solution. Question is, would Jesus feel the same way about us as he did back then? Are we an effective bridge? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter nine. If you get three quarters of the way through the 
Bible in front of you, it starts with a one again, and it's on page 134. Page 134. Page 134, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 19. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, Paul writes, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though uh, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. He's talking about Gentiles there that wouldn't have the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may be all, by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. We'll stop there. Just two simple points, and we're going to walk through the second one for a long, long time. First, our mandate as Christians is to become servants of the spiritual needs of every unbelieving person. That's what Paul is saying. Now, this is the segue that he uses to get into the subject we're going to spend most of our time with, but he's talking about how important it is, and I want to just focus on that for a couple of moments. Paul's an apostle. He's actually a controversial apostle because he really wasn't you know, walking with Jesus like one of the other apostles. He also had a tendency to kill Christians for a while, and so when he became an apostle, people naturally weren't so sure that he was the real deal, thought it could be a trap, so he struggled with getting people to recognize his apostleship compared to those who walked with Jesus. And so you'll find Paul in many situations in books of the Bible kind of being a little bit defensive and defending his rights as an apostle. He does that in this chapter. Most apostles were actually paid. Many of them, verse 5 indicates, traveled with spouses at that time. In fact, many church elders, especially teaching elders, at that point in the first century were actually getting paid. Already you had a church staff developing kind of in the early church. But Paul supported himself. We call him a tent maker. He, he did things himself. And so he is saying here, because I take care of myself and I'm not traveling with a wife and, and nobody's supporting me, he's basically saying I'm obligated to no one. And then as the passage began, for though I am free from all men because nobody's paying me, nobody owns me, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So what Paul is saying, nobody owns me, therefore voluntarily I make myself a slave or a servant to the needs of every person I know to reach them with the gospel because he cared about the plight of people outside of faith. Now that analogy is, is a real analogy, I mean he's talking about, he's using a word for slavery. Now. Slavery was rampant in Roman society. If you were to go to a Roman city in the first century, it's very possible in many cities you would have more uh, slaves than free people in some of those cities. It wasn't racial. It's not like the last few centuries in the Western world. It was not racial. It was more the result of wars, which would enslave whole groups of people, famines, which would cause people to get into slavery, and economics. And the Roman form was kind of brutal with some exceptions. In Rome, if you owned slaves, you had all rights over them, and it was pretty awful. But you'll find in Roman society stories like, remember Ben-Hur? I know you've all seen that movie. Okay, Ben-Hur. You're not raising your hands, but I know you're with me. I know not raising your hands is an act of defiance. <sighs> you've seen Ben-Hur and how Judah Ben-Hur becomes a slave, and then he's eventually bought by a senator, and finally at the end of the movie, the senator adopts him as his own son. And so in Roman society, slaves could like go up into a household and sometimes become parts of the family and so on. That was the very nice side of it. Most of it in Roman society was not very nice. But actually, ancient Israel had a 
at a humane form of slavery, which kind of gets you know, washed out of our minds because of what we know about slavery in the modern world, which is awful. But in ancient Israel, if somebody had a debt, they could sort of use a temporary slavery as a way to get out of their economic mess. So you might become a slave to the person you owe the debt for maybe seven years, and then you were automatically freed in Jewish law after that seven-year period. Sometimes, if somebody had a good experience with that because they had a really generous slave owner, if you will, and the arrangement was good for them, they would actually make it permanent. They would go to that, that you know, owner of the vineyard or owner of the ranch and say, you know what, I'm happy with this arrangement. If you promise to take care of me in my old age and you're going to take care of my wife, I will become a permanent part of your household. And then they would go through a ritual that I believe is described in Exodus 21 where they had their ear pierced. And I'm not talking like the little tiny piercings like we get for our little babies when they're three. I didn't do that, but I know some of you do that, you know, little girls get piercings at three. But I'm talking about the kind of, you know, big hole in the ear like you see at the gym with the guys with the tattoos. And they would take an awl and they would like pierce the ear, big piercing, and they would have a public ceremony and you would be permanently a part of that person's household. It was like a binding long-term labor contract with, if you can accept this, a good slave owner in that situation. That's the analogy Paul is using. I'm not owned by anybody. Nobody has any rights on me because nobody's paying me, which means I don't, I don't owe anyone anything, but I sell myself permanently to the obligation to reach every person I can with the message of who Jesus is. Wow. And there's a pretty direct application to us. My unsaved neighbor, my unsaved family member owns me because I make it so. That's what I care about. They have the rights to me. Well, how? How does that happen? That's what we're going to talk about for quite a while today. Second, our commitment as Christians, as Christ followers, is to find relatable relatability or common ground in every redemptive relationship. Now, churches have values. This is, and a lot of churches have this value. We have this value. It's called cultural relevance. It means we want to be a relatable place for people on their journeys to Christ. Now, there are a lot of things that are important at church. That's why we don't just have one value. We have, I think, six or so. We have a bunch of values. There is no more important value than this. This is, this is the thing that has always mattered to me more than anything except the word of God is relevance or relatability when it comes to church growth, even reaching Christians, but when it comes to evangelism especially. Now I'm gonna say something some of you aren't gonna like, so I'm giving you the pre-warning that allows you to get defensive before I even say it. You're welcome. You can preach truth and you can pray calluses on your knees, but if you don't get this right, you won't reach people. Rinse and repeat. You can preach truth and pray calluses on your knees, but if you don't get this value right, you will not reach people and the church will not grow. It is that important. Because it, if you preach the truth but it's not relatable, it's not contextual for other people, they're never gonna be on the same page in understanding it. So Paul gives us many examples of this. It's how he found spiritual common ground with all kinds of people, and he walks through it, and one of them is probably with actually a group of believers. He's not just talking about the unbelieving crowd. Notice his examples. He says, to the Jews, or to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now here's what he's saying. He said, Jews are my countrymen, they're my people, all right? So he's saying, I get what it's like to minister to the Jewish people. They're the Old Testament chosen people. Israel was a theocracy. It's like God is their king, and as they obeyed him and honored him, he would bless them as a nation, and all the nations in the world were to see that and come to know the true God. But if you know you're one of the chosen people, what does that do for you? It's kind of like being a parent's favorite child. You're never supposed to do that as a parent, but if a kid feels like he's the favorite, he's untouchable. Well, that's the way Paul's countrymen felt. They felt like, we've got this security, we're God's chosen people, we're automatically in. In fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day said this, Abraham, the father of Israel, 
sits at the gates of Hades and his good works are applied to any Jew who happens to get close to that spot. You know, anybody headed potentially to hell, Abraham is there and his works, his good works cover the whole nation. That was the rabbinic view of the importance of Abraham to the people of Israel. They believe that their nationality, and if you were a male, uh, you know, identified by your circumcision, was sort of a saving issue. So you know what kind of sermon Paul would preach to Jews? One that specifically sort of attacked those issues, but very gently. So in Romans 4, when Paul is sending this letter, he says, you know, Abraham, yes, he's the father of Israel, but you know what? Actually, if you go back and read Genesis, it says that he was justified by faith before he was circumcised. That's interesting. So a circumcision didn't save him. Being a Jew didn't save him. So Paul would say, there's a specific way to reach my countrymen, and it's different than you would reach others. So he goes, he had a unique approach there. So he goes to those under the law. These aren't just Jews. These are the real serious ones. I mean, these aren't like Christmas and Easter people. These are like, they're really deeply religious. They're the highly religious Jews. That's what Paul was. That was his background. He was a Pharisee. They went into the Old Testament, and they found, I believe, 613 commands, not 10, 613, and they said, you got to keep all of them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees would come up with, or not the Pharisees, but the scribes would come up with all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, ways to keep those 613 rules. So you might have 613 rules with, you know, 10 or 20,000 applications. And you were responsible to keep all of them if you were going to be a good Jew. They also had oral traditions, and you had to memorize those surrounding those 613 rules. They had rules for everything. This was self-righteous religion. That was actually the crowd that killed Jesus. Paul's sermon to them, you know what he did? He took a unique approach. It was different than the first group. He said, I was actually trained under Gamaliel. He was the famous teacher in Israel. He said, I've got all your credentials and more. He talks about what tribe he was from. He talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day and and all the things he did and how he knew the law and he kept it. And then in Philippians 3, he said, you know what? I did all of that stuff He said, but none of it mattered compared to actually knowing Jesus. So he had a unique approach to that group. And then he talked about people like us, people who are not under the law. I should say Gentiles who didn't revere the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't about them. It wasn't for them. They didn't have Old Testaments. And when he was talking to that group of people, he didn't necessarily even quote the scriptures, which I find kind of shocking. But Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. They were his mission. He protected them in the early church from those who said, you have to come from being a Gentile to a Jew to be a Christian. Because in Acts 15, the early Jewish believers said Gentiles need to be Jews also. So in the early church in Acts 15, there's a big debate over whether new Christians who are Gentiles need to get circumcised. As adults, that's a painful church membership class. A lot of women were joining the church, but not a lot of men. Funny thing. And Paul defended the idea that no, we're not going to make Gentiles become Jews to become Christians. That doesn't make any sense. His message to Gentiles. Here's a sermon to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17. It's fascinating. He's in, I believe, the Areopagus. He's at an area that's got like one temple after another, all kinds of idols and so on. He's preaching a sermon, I believe out in the street. Get this. He doesn't quote the Old Testament once. Because Gentiles wouldn't know what the Old Testament is. He refers to a statue to the unknown God. He cites Greek poetry and he says, that unknown God, that's the God I want to tell you about. That's the God of Christianity, the one you label as the unknown God. He actually preaches a sermon, and get this, because I'm not even comfortable with this. He actually never mentions or uses Jesus' name in that sermon. And yet he's trying to bring people to faith in the true God. That was an adaptive situation because of the crowd. To the weak, now in my mind, this isn't a group of people who aren't Christians. To the weak, it could be a group of people who are new believers, but they don't understand their newfound freedom in Christ, and so they didn't know what to do with certain traditions, certain issues. It might be a Gentile who comes to faith and used to worship at a temple. There was a pagan temple, and they would offer sacrifices there, and then the meat that was offered in the sacrifice made its way to market, 
And it was what the New Testament calls meat offered to idols. And Paul's view on this was very simple. Paul said, hey, a ribeye is a ribeye. And if I can get it cheaper because it was sacrificed, you know, to Diana at the temple, if it's cheaper at, you know, our kosher Costco, I'm going to get that ribeye because, you know, why would I pay more? I don't worship that God. I don't care. But there were new believers who used to worship in those temples, who participated in those pagan practices, and they felt like, I can't buy that, uh, that ribeye that's been sacrificed to a temple at the temple. It feels like I'm just right back in my pagan religion. So Paul had a special message for them and he said, you know what? If it's going to trip them up in their faith, then I'm not going to eat that meat. I could eat that meat. It's really good meat, but I won't eat that meat. I'll eat the kosher meat. So there was a special message for them out of love. Paul was completely adaptive to the audiences and the cultures he was trying to reach without compromise. In fact, look how far he went. For Paul, reaching your audience meant everything. And so right after he's in Acts 15, telling Gentiles, you do not need to be circumcised to follow Jesus. That's ridiculous. And he has a big debate with other Jewish leaders about this. And Paul wins the day. The very verses of the next chapter, listen to this. Timothy is young protege. He's got a Jewish mom, Greek dad. When Timothy was born, the Greek dad said to mom, yeah, we're not going to circumcise him. That's not my thing. You know, you knew that when you married me. I'm a nice guy. I'm reading that between the lines a little bit. I'm a nice guy, but we're not circumcising any little boys in our family. We're not following through on this Jewish stuff that you believe in. But other than that, we're going to have a great marriage. All right? So they have a little boy named Timothy. He doesn't get circumcised, but his mom raises him as a Jew. Now he's a Christian, and he's following Paul, and people are saying, hey, Paul, you need this Timothy guy. We think he can preach. We think he can lead. You need to get him in ministry. So right in chapter 16, right after the big church fight over circumcision, Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, buddy, we're going on a missions trip, and guess what? We're going into Jewish territory. So I need you to take one for the team. Yep. So as an adult, he had Timothy circumcised so he would be effective at reaching Jewish people, even though the chapter before he made the argument that was unnecessary. That's how adaptive Paul was. That's how much culture mattered to Paul in understanding how to reach people. For Paul, he knew that he needed to create the bridge, not the other way around. He didn't expect people on the outside to figure out how to come and be a part of us. He recognized it's his responsibility to figure out how to find common ground. And it was based on elements of relevance and relatability in the person he's trying to reach. For Paul... The outside world, the outsider, the person who's not a person of faith, determined his ministry strategies. He didn't just say, oh, you know what, they're all welcome here, and they can come on our terms, because we love them. You know, we love them. They'll be here if God wants them here. Yep. No. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to create a relatable context for every different kind of person I meet so that they have an opportunity to come to know the true God. And he said, the burden of that is on us, not them. He says, I'm a slave to my lost friend. I'll do anything except sin to reach him. And I'll adjust ministry to, to their needs and wants in order to reach them. And included, by the way, even the way they did church. So this is not a situation where we say, okay, Paul, I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, the church service, that's kind of sacred. We don't mess with that. I mean, that's about us. That's about us. And we'll create some ministries where some people who don't know Jesus can kind of filter in at the edges, and if they like what they see, they kind of get a little closer. But church service, that's all limit. That's all about us. This is, that's the holy huddle part of the week. No. First Corinthians, Paul said, you know what, guys? This thing called tongues where you speak in other languages and it kind of started at Pentecost, we need to tone that down in our public services because we got some people coming and visiting and they think y'all are nuts. So he said, we need to even shape our church services to some degree to manage to stay within ourselves so that a broad group of people can come to know and love the true God. And because of that, first century churches were messy 
as every level of maturity showed up on Sunday. And you read all the corrective stuff in, in the epistles. You say, man, there was stuff going on in those churches that kind of shocking. Well, that's because the early church was filled with every level of spiritual maturity, including non-believers. For Paul, culture was a ministry tool. It was not an enemy. Now, effective churches have a sophisticated view of culture. They do. They have to. So what is culture? Well, I've got this little board up here, which you probably can't see, but you'll kind of remember it a little bit more if we do something visual. So culture, and the question here is, is it a friend? Is it an enemy? Or is it sort of a morally neutral issue? Is culture, which is part of relatability, a friend, an enemy, or sort of neutral? Because churches all have philosophies about culture. So what is culture? The social behaviors, the institutions, and the norms in a society. To break it down a little further, it's our knowledge base, it's our belief systems, it's our laws, it's our customs, it's the habits that people have in in a society. Those are all parts of culture. So is culture... Our friend, our enemy, or is it neutral? What would you say? Yeah, it was really smart of you not to say anything. Because the answer is yes. Yes. Is it our friend? Yes. Is it our enemy? Yes. Is it neutral? Yes. Say, Paul, how can those things be true? Because it depends what part of culture you're talking about. All right? And that's what I want you to think through with me a little bit. All right? So culture. There's, kinda, there's a division in the culture, all right? Friend, enemy, or neutral. So there are certainly some things in culture that we would say, well, they're, they're hostile to God. In the New Testament, Paul has a word for that. What's the world? What, I just, what's the word? What's, it's the world. Yeah, Freudian slip there. Okay, the word is world. It's the word cosmos. It's the arrangements of things. And the way Paul uses that word in the New Testament, when he uses the word world, He's talking about the world system philosophically organized against and hostile to the kingdom of God. So we would say there are things in the world that that actually are sort of the enemy of the kingdom of heaven. One of them would be pluralism and sort of our belief that, you know, nobody really has the truth and and as long as you're sincere, you're gonna get into heaven. It really doesn't matter if you get it right. At the end of the day, Jesus will accept everybody. Another one would be um, sexual freedom and that would start all the way back 1960s and there's a new version of it every 20 years in the Western world and we're experiencing that now in our school systems and society. Sexual freedom and that's an umbrella for everything that may bother you in the world in, in, in related to that. Um, laws that may not respect life. So we're just gonna talk about life issues and whether it's uh, not whether it's euthanasia for older people, whether it's the abortion issue, there are things in the culture we'd say, you know, we don't really agree with this because we believe that life is precious and people are made in the image of God. So there's a part of the culture that is the world that is sort of hostile to God and is sort of the enemy of faith. But there are other things that aren't, like parts of education. You know, I want people to know how to read and write. That's part of the culture. Now, there are things in the education system I might disagree with, but education in general, we think that's a good thing. Do you like to read? Yes. Music. Music is a part of culture. Musical styles are a part of the culture. Musical styles are morally neutral. Some of you don't agree with that. Some of you would say musical styles, well, that's the enemy, that's the world. I get that. I get that. My mom probably had that view, and in heaven, she's probably singing that song we played, and she's liking it. Sorry, Ellen. But anyway... Music is a morally neutral sort of issue in the culture. Economic systems, they're sort of morally neutral. Laws that protect us generally, the speed limit, it's morally neutral. So is culture a friend, an enemy, or neutral? Yes. Depends on the issue. But here's the problem. The primary approach a church takes on this issue will deeply affect how it views reaching people. If you're a church that believes the culture is always our friend and it's not the enemy, you're probably a compromising church. Because anything that comes into the culture, you're just gonna say, well, that's okay. Love matters more than anything. You know, we're not gonna tell anyone they're doing anything wrong, ever, because we really don't believe anything is wrong, ever. Those churches that believe the culture is always the friend are compromising churches. 
Churches that believe the culture is always the enemy become separatist churches. I was raised in a separatist environment. I would argue that the history of this church is somewhat separatist. I don't think I have to make that argument if you've been around here a long time. Now, the extreme separatist movements would be like the Amish. How would you like to be in charge of Amish evangelism? Huh? How would you like to be in charge of Amish evangelism? We're going to bring everyone to a new membership class. We're going to take away their car keys. We're going to give them a horse. Hey, here's Buck. No pun intended. You know, ride him home. You know, and here's the slow-moving vehicle sign that accompanies Buck. You can put it on your pretend keychain. How would you like to be responsible for Amish evangelism? It would not be an easy job. That one would have to pay a lot of money. So you could just get up miserable every day, but at least go look at your bank account and be happy. Churches that believe culture is always the enemy tend to not change because they tend to lock in a specific era and say, this is the way you do church. We're going to sing this music until we die. We're never going to change because that's God's music. And all the rest of that music, that's the devil's music. As many people have asked, why does the devil have all of the good music then? But that's another issue. That really was asked by some early leaders in the contemporary worship world. The ideal is that we recognize that parts of the culture are the enemy of our faith. Parts of the culture are, are, you know, are, are going to be neutral and parts of the culture are positive and we need to be adaptive and, and careful but try to find common ground with the culture. Now, there was a massive movement. Oh my goodness, the time has flown by. All right, we're running now. There was a massive movement in the late 80s and early 90s in the church growth movement in North America to put these principles into practice. Tens of thousands of churches made changes, radical changes in how they did ministry. It was the contemporary worship movement. It was ministries like MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers, where we were bringing women into the church who may not have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, but they had little kids. We'd do stuff with them, and the, you know, they would get together, and you'd have women from your church with them. Eventually, they're coming to church. They're bringing their husbands. People came to faith that way, like a lot of people came to faith that way. Nice facilities are a statement about you know, cultural relevance. Mental health ministries took off. Addiction ministries took off. Sort of Christians sort of replicating what AA does and called it something else. Application-oriented, explanation-oriented biblical teaching. Preaching changed from what it was in my parents' generation, what I grew up with. Series directed towards felt needs. I used to preach parenting series once a year. It took a month to talk about parenting and marriage and things like that. Mass marketing, social media. These are the churches that made the pivot in the 80s and 90s to be adaptive to culture, not compromising, but to reach people. And they're the churches that have been the most evangelistically effective. And by the way, they're also the churches that have been the most generationally effective. They kept their kids. They kept their grandkids. Why? Because younger people have the same questions as non-believing people have. Younger people are growing up in a culture different than their parents, and they need an adaptive church to continue to reach them. And every church chooses which generation's culture is most important. And to grow, churches had to and have to Always lean young with the culture. A few applications as we wrap up. First, am I a servant of the success of the gospel or to the success of the gospel? To Paul, this was everything. I don't want to take much time with this, but at the end he, he says, I do, things, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a, follow, a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. He starts equating this issue of being effective to like being in the Olympics and getting the prize. Does that describe our view of 
outsiders, people in our lives who don't know Jesus, like, man, I gotta train for this. It's like winning the Olympics. If I can get this right, it's awesome. That was his view of the outside world. Second, have I forgotten how to think like an outsider? Well, this is one of my favorite stories. It's a story where I did something really stupid. And I know some of you wonder, Paul, do you do really stupid things so you have good sermon illustrations? No, this was really just my stupidity. I started deer hunting when I was about 30. And to no deer will die in this illustration, just like usually no deer die in my hunts. <laughs> but to deer hunt effectively, you need to understand deer and you need to fit into their world. So you've got camo because deer are actually colorblind, but if they see, you know, somebody up there in a lumberjack, you know, red and black squares, they know that doesn't look like the leaves in a tree. So patterns matter. Scent is also important. A deer can smell about 200 times better than you can. And so there are actually two kinds of scents. There are attractant scents and there are cover scents. Now an attractant scent in the fall, um, when does go to the bathroom, it magically smells like Chanel number no. five to bucks. It does. And bucks go crazy. So hunters will buy the Chanel uh, number no. five and they will put it on their boots and walk through the woods and hopefully a buck will come and smell that and follow them to their tree stand. They'll hang it in trees on little wicks and I have done all of this. Yes, I have bought that Chanel number no. five. And the only thing worse than that is the guy who has to collect it, that job. Now all your kids can opt out of sex ed after this sermon. So there's attractant sense, and then there's cover sense. Cover sense mean you're gonna put something on you that smells strong so they won't smell your human odor. So it's the odors of other animals, or it's deer dander, something that smells like a deer hide, or dirt, or pine scent. So I went to my local Walmart, and I bought a big bottle of pine scent. I mean, I smelled like a pine tree. If you were to take a pine tree and put it through a shredder, that was me. And I got up early, with my pine scent and my gun, and I entered the woods in the dark, and I had great hopes. I was in deer heaven. I laid down between fallen limbs. I had a sleeping bag out there to keep me warm. It was really cold. And after daybreak, a large group of does trickled down the hill towards me. And I was ready to feed my hungry children. But before they got in range, they began to bust me. That's what we call it. When a deer knows you're there, you're busted. Now, there's two ways you can tell a deer has busted you. One of them is the head jerk, and this is almost funny. If you're up in a tree stand and a doe thinks they've seen some movement, they'll kind of act like they're eating, and then they'll be like, and they'll just whip their head up to try to catch you moving. And so you're up there just freezing to death, you know, and they're doing the whole head jerk thing, and, and I barely kept my glasses there. Anyway, it was for effect. But that's, they'll bust you that way, and it's so funny, they can be right underneath you, and they'll just stare at you, and then you realize you can never move, and they'll just run away. But the other one is the wheeze, which I'm not going to imitate. But there is the wheeze, where it's almost like they're clearing their noses. It's like they smelled pepper, and they're just blowing it all, and they just wheeze, and it's loud, and it is, a, it is, a, it is a, something they're sending through the woods all around saying, here's a warning sign. There is some idiot down there with a gun. They wheezed up like a whole choir of wheezers. And I never shot a deer that day. And eventually it occurred to me, there are no pine trees in that woods. I am that stupid. I have multiple advanced degrees, but I am that stupid. Generations of deer have lived there. They've followed those trails for decades. They have never run across a semi-load of Christmas trees like they smelled that morning. I had failed as a hunter. I'm embarrassed for anyone else here who owns a gun. I failed. I'm Paul, I have a problem. It was my job to understand their surroundings. It was my job to smell like dirt or to smell like oak trees, which were actually there, or to smell like a female deer. That was my job. It wasn't because I didn't try. 
I was up in the middle of the night. I mean, I was there before it was dawn. It was, it was dark. I did everything right. I tried, except I didn't relate to them at all. And they knew it, and they wheezed. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of unbelievers wheezing at the church. Not because they're not open to spiritual things, but because we do such a poor job of finding common ground with them and thinking through how to be relatable in ministry and in word. And finally, am I a supporter of change or a defender of we've always done it this way? Change is painful. But effective churches are always open to change. We don't change our doctrinal statements. We don't change what we believe. We don't change our core beliefs. We believe the word of God. We believe its relevance is for all times. We might just have to change the illustrations and the way we explain it, but it is a rock and it is the foundation of our faith. We're not trying to change that, but change in these culturally neutral areas is constant in churches that are trying to reach each new generation as well as those who are not yet here. I was a part of um, a group of people who were in a, like a learning cohort in the Twin Cities, a church called Eagle Brook. Eagle Brook's probably one of the biggest churches in America. I knew the lead pastor there before he retired a little bit. My wife and I remember when that church was probably 400 to 800 people. Her brother-in-law, Bill Butters, former professional hockey player, um, went there, was baptized there. Uh, the family's still there. And at that time, it was one campus, and, and eventually that church became 10 campuses or so, and probably 60 or 65,000 people on Easter over those 10 campuses, probably 20 or 25,000 people on a week. Cultural relevance is the center of what they do. And I remember a story, I think it was told by Bob Merritt, who was their former lead pastor. On the main campus, every weekend, you'd see them, this little pack of really old ladies. And I'm not going to mention an age because some of you might be there. And you don't think you're old. And that's good. That's optimism. I like it. And by the way, that Joel's not 14. He's got a college degree and he's working on a master's. I've talked. And anyway, I don't feel so bad about lying about my age now. 14. I'm 29 now. All right. So anyway, these pack old ladies, really old ladies comes in the church. And you know what they do? They just get in there and put in their earplugs and sit down with big smiles on their faces. That wasn't the church they grew up with. It's probably not even the church they like. Music isn't what they like. They bring their earplugs so they don't, you know, whatever. Don't like the music, it's too loud or something. By the way, we're really working on that issue. I know it's an issue for some of you. Don't sit in the kill zone. It's about two-thirds of the way back. Sit in the front. We're making some adjustments to our speaker horns. We really are. I really am off track here. All right. Why did they do that? Why do they still go there? Why don't they just leave Eagle Brook and find a church that just plays hymns? And here's why. Because ever since that church was four to 800 people and before it was 60,000 people at Easter, they've seen it all. They've seen thousands of people baptized. They've seen the growth. They see the young families. They see people who didn't go to church before trying out church because it's cool and exciting and interesting and Relevant, dare I say. They've seen tens of thousands of people's lives connected to that ministry. So for them, putting in earplugs every week, no big deal. Change is hard for us. But change is necessary. If you want us to be able to reach your children's children and theirs children. Because the church has to be adaptive to the parts of the culture that are a part of their lives that are not the enemy. They're just different than what we may like. I'm gonna pray, and as I pray, the worship team's gonna come back up for our final song. And um, if you have a prayer request for a friend or a relative or yourself, there'll be some prayer team members down front as well. We just invite you to come down and have a chance to pray with them about anything that's on your heart. God, we thank you for your word. And I just pray that you would help us to be the kind of church that is willing to do whatever we can to reach people with the gospel. That when we want to change some things in order to be more effective, that we would have a heart to say, yeah, that sounds like that might reach some people we're not yet reaching. And so, of course, I want to be open to that. And that we would be 
a servant to the needs of the outside world so that we can be partakers, participants in the spread of the gospel. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.